I thought, well, I have to have enough information that they get what's happening, but I don't want to slow the novel down. So that was how I gauged it. I'm gently peppering in information from the past. It has a more immediate feeling to it. So I, I make an effort <laughs> to stay present, even though we may be looking at something or gathering some information that is important in backstory. Hi, this is Stephanie Fallon. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, their stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have Gail Priest, author of the Annie Crow Knoll Trilogy. Gail lives in Haddington Heights, New Jersey, but for 17 years, she and her husband rented a vacation cottage in a Chesapeake Bay Area community, and it was the inspiration for the Annie Crow Knoll novels. A selection from the second book in the series appeared in an anthology published by P.S. Books. Gail's career in performing arts and education has allowed her to play various roles, teacher, college professor, guidance counselor, actor, director, and writer. In fact, she was named Writer of the Year for 2016 by the South Jersey Writers Group and is currently working on her new novel, Soulmates, which is set in Philadelphia and Rehoboth, Delaware. So welcome to the podcast, Gail. Thank you for having me. One of the things that I love talking to authors about when you have a trilogy is how you are able to pull a single thread through three books. I mean, for me, that seems like a monumental task, but you've clearly pulled it off in uh, the first novel came out in 2013, which was Sunrise, then Sunset in 2014, and then Moonrise in 2016, which just came out. So in that short amount of time, you were able to do a massive amount of work. How, how did that kind of come together for you? I had written a very long novel, which included Sunrise and a lot of Sunset. And I hired a wonderful editor who said, this is way too long for your first novel. So I said, well, instead of cutting things out, what if I made it two novels? And she said, that's a brilliant idea. So I found a way to have the ending between Annie and what had to be resolved with the mother move up. And I kept Nate to 12 years old. And then I started the second novel focused on him. So it starts when he's 12, and it goes to his young adulthood and his issues with his wife and having to resolve things back with his mom from childhood experiences. And I liked the idea of a trilogy. And all along, I had this image in my mind from cycling of seeing someone I might care about in some deep way in the reflection of my mirror, you know, that lets you know traffic's coming up behind you. And I had no idea where I would ever use it, but it kept coming to me. And eventually I realized that Nate could have daughters and they could be cyclists. And then the third novel came. So I didn't plan it that way. Sure. And I find that a lot of times I just need to trust what's happening. And I may not know where I'm going, but I'll get there somehow. Sure, sure. (laughs) And that's what happened with this. That's one of my favorite things is when things, when you're writing, you're like, oh, I I guess this is what happens now. Mm -hmm. It's for me, like thinking about it. I think puts it in the back of your head like you're walking around. Like you said, I've got this I've got this mirror thing in my head for 20 years. And then all of a sudden right. it's like, oh, this is where that goes. And you just – you realize it as you're typing it. And it's just – I think it's just a really wonderful experience. It is. It's, it's nice to get to a point where you can trust. And being the person I am, that isn't always easy. <laughs> but I'm getting better at it. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a, something to be said for a writer trusting their instincts and mm-hmm. – 
I think for some of us, it's natural to second guess it. But I think Mm -hmm. if you can allow yourself to think, no, maybe I know the right answer here. These are my characters and and kind of letting them help you also make that decision. And that's so true. I need to listen to my characters. Yeah. They tell me what they want. And it isn't always what I thought they wanted and what I wanted. And I have to let go of that and follow what they give me. Sure. It's it's funny. I think that that comes from practice where you see that the story is fitting into into the larger picture in a way that you hadn't necessarily planned out. I, I believe that's true, Tony. I think sometimes the author, the, the characters know better than I do. Mm-hmm. And I have a concept of where this is going and themes I want to communicate and issues that are important to me, and they know how to make that happen. Yeah, and you just sort of mentioned themes. The three novels are sort of broken out generationally with Annie, the mother, the son, Nate, featuring uh, the center of the second one, and then the his two daughters mm-hmm. in the third. So we have this nice sort of generational kind of segment that you've allowed to happen. But within those, I mean, you're dealing with some pretty intense topics. I mean, suicide, family estrangement, loss of parents, uh, tragic uh, immediate deaths, uh, disability. I mean, you're really packing a lot of intense issues into these three novels. So I guess sort of with all that, with the intensity of those issues, three novels probably make sense. But can you talk to us a little bit about using those kind of deep themes and and how that kind of works, especially knowing that you're going to develop that over a trilogy? And I mean, that just seems like an incredible task that you've, you've carved out for yourself. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of a happy accident. Sure. Um, I found when I'm writing, I don't know that I'm completely clear of all the things I'm touching on. And I look back and I go, oh, wow, look what you're getting into here. And so where can we go with that? Some of that has to do with uh, my counseling background. I have a master's degree in counseling psychology and I've worked with students. And I've studied a lot about family therapy and family dynamics. And it's really important to me as a person that there is family healing and also my theater background because I understand how an actor goes into the backstory of a character. And I've written some plays, so I understand how the actor interprets that and how the plot development needs to go. Those things really were my training for this. I didn't know that. I thought, why am I writing a novel? I write plays. I've I've written a screenplay, and now I'm writing a novel. But I had a lot of guidance and help with... Writers are the best people. They're so supportive of one another. (laughs) We really are. We're great. (laughs) So when you when you find the right people to help you and support you, you, you know the sky's the limit. So I I do feel passionately about a lot of the issues that I cover in the novels. I don't know that I was completely cognizant of where I was going, but I I got there and I'm happy that I get feedback from people that say, wow, I really understand how Annie felt at that moment. I felt the same way about my marriage. Or yes, I've had some depression in my family, and this is really important to discuss this. And and currently, there's so much violence in our, in our culture. And that's why I wanted to have the tragic event at the cycling event that the girls are, are participating in out in California with their grandfather. And, of course, everybody comes back to Annie Cronoll to heal. The healing power of nature and art and friendship, those are three themes that go through all the whole trilogy. 
And I thought, what a great way to have the granddaughters wrap up that concept with the last story in in the trilogy. And both of them have backstories, as any good character has, that affect them. And now they have this new challenge, and it's making them have to rethink, do I want to hold the world this way? Do I want to continue my behavior along a pattern that I've I've taken on as a defense mechanism to cope, or can I evolve? Can mm. I change? Right. And so then you have older, wiser characters who guide. And part of what I love so much about Annie is now she's a grandmother, but she's still struggling. There are things with aging that are blowing her mind in the third book, but she's certainly not who she was in the first book. Sure. She has that core spunkiness and individuality and strength that everybody loves, but by the time she's a grandmother, she's a bit more zen and and philosophical, and she helps her granddaughters. How did you make them stand individually and also be part of a trilogy? Because that's the kind of thing that always kind of blows my mind, is the, the ability to make three separate novels that are tied together into mm-hmm. one long story, but are also independent on their own. Yeah, they have these standalone qualities to them. Definitely. Almost. They really do. I want people to be able to pick up any one of them. Right. right. And then say, oh, I want to read the earlier one if they haven't. And going into the second book, how much of the first do you have to retell mm-hmm. or bring in? Or do you make that decision, okay, I want them to be someone can pick up Sunset, realize, okay, something else happened. But how mm-hmm. do you make the decision of what to include or not include in the trilogy to be able to either make them standalone but still have that thread that continual thread feeling. I find when I'm reading, I I am a little impatient. I need things to keep happening. So I write that way as well. I, I give enough description you, that you get a sense of where you are and what's happening and what things are looking like. But I don't go into it as deeply as other authors do, and they're more talented in that area. It's not my strong suit anyway. But I really enjoy what's going on with these people. And that's where the theater background influences me. I see the characters like it's a screenplay. And what are they doing? So we learn more about what's happening to them rather than from description or exposition, but what are they doing? Right. You know, how are they picking up their tea? Is their hand trembling? What's going on there? So when I looked at, especially with Moonrise, because I wanted it to be a standalone, and it's it's 20 years later, where the other two are back-to-back and much earlier. I thought, well, I have to have enough information that they get what's happening, but I don't want to slow the novel down. Right. So that was how I gauged it. This isn't slowing things down. I'm, I'm gently peppering in sure. information from the past. There are a couple flashbacks. I have Ian with all the journals, so we get to know his backstory, and that's how we understand what he went through in, in very quick action-oriented. Plus, you have the person who's reading the journal reacting, so it's present, even though you're finding out things about his past. and His mother died when he was in high school and those kinds of things, but it, it has a more immediate feeling to it. So I, I try to – I don't know if I answered the question, but I, I, yeah. I make an effort <laughs> to sure. stay present even though we may be looking at something or gathering some information that is important in backstory. Well, that was the one of the things that you said that I thought was fascinating, that the old stories, by the time you get to the end of the third book – you're also caught up to speed. Yes, that was important to me. But I also hope that people go, oh, I want to know the details. Yeah, what, what I want really the happens. juicy yeah. details, and they'll go back and get the other two books. <laughs> now, when you said you – I just wanted to draw on something real quick because for me, I, I find it interesting. The the notion that looking at it from an actor, director, theater mm-hmm. background and moving to a novel, 
I mean, although in my head that seems like a leap, but when I'm listening to you describe, all right, I'm writing this scene and I need to see, I kind of close my eyes and and you picture how your actor, your actors are now your characters Mm -hmm. and you're moving through that. Is that a, is that a a deeply visual process for you? Mm -hmm. Because I would imagine it would have to be. It is. And sometimes I'll see what they're doing and they won't tell me what they're saying yet. And I get annoyed, like, speak up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then eventually I figure it out. I mean, the longest time in, in sunset, I saw Jose showing up on the knoll and uh, Bethany turning around, or Beth Ann, excuse me, Beth Ann turning around and seeing him from down below in the fireplace pit that's partway down toward the beach and being very concerned that he was there and upset and angry and not knowing what to do with their feelings. But I had no idea what was going on. I just saw it happening. And then eventually they told me and it fit in. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I, I'm a nonfiction writer. I mean, I sort of draw my, my quote unquote characters are, are usually most of the time, uh, real people, real places, real events is kind of my bread and butter. So my story arc is already there. Mm-hmm. I, I already kind of know what's what. And so for me, developing a character is really kind of kind of just polishing off a, you know, a historical photo sometimes. But to hear fiction writers talk, and I don't know if this is true for you, like to hear fiction writers talk about the characters talk to me. They're doing things I that I didn't know they were going to do. And so for me, initially, I'm just like, well, they're your characters. Don't you just don't just make them do what you want to do? But it doesn't work like that. No, I have found that it doesn't. Oftentimes, they'll go along with me. But if they have a better idea, it's usually the better idea. And, and I have to back down and I, let it happen. I think that as you go along and you're writing what's happening, the character becomes more fully formed than it was when you first started. Absolutely. And so they start to develop dispositions as mm-hmm. you're going along. So you're going along and all of a sudden you're like, this is what's right. It's, um, I don't know if I would describe it as a character telling you, but what if you're going to make, I think it's for any writer who's telling any story at all, if you're going to make the story consistent, then it has to be consistent with itself. So as you build it, what comes next naturally has to fit with what came before it. And mm-hmm. All of our senses of narrative. I mean, there are things even in nonfiction that we'll leave out, sure, sure, or that will, or that will skirt. Yeah, yes. I was, I was, I was around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just kind Tony's of Tony's over here miming. <laughs> just kind of squish in because what you want to do is you want to make it consistent and you want to make it compelling. Mm. And if you're, if you're. If your goal is I'm going to make this consistent and compelling, then the characters will have to tell you what's coming next. I think, mm-hmm. yeah, they will. And for me, it's often like a movie. Not 100%, but often I'll see them doing whatever they're doing, and I go, oh, wow, okay, that's what's happening here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the, the, um, just to kind of circle back for a hot second, um, the, the themes, like I said, we talked earlier, you know, these pretty heavy, intense themes, which feel very timely in our world right now mm-hmm. of depression, mental illness, or, um, you know, estrangement and all these sorts of things. And then having a counseling background and pulling that into the character. Can you talk a little bit about how how you're able to kind of wash that in or kind of it almost feels like you're not trying to like come right out and be like, I'm telling you the moral of a story. Mm-mm. But in order to deliver that, you have to gently kind of give us that healing. Mm-hmm. It reminds me that a, a reviewer said that I uh, cover sexism and racism without hitting the reader over the head. 
And there are only two things, but that was what she had focused on. And I appreciated that. If it's very much a part of the character and the story arc, then I don't have to worry about getting on my soapbox about what's important to me. It filters through the character's choices, what they're struggling with, how they resist change, who helps to influence them to change, and what is their philosophy or or their experience in life that they can reach out and find a way to touch them without telling them what they should do, but opening up possibilities of new ways of being. Sure. Like that channel communication of a character experiencing something that's relatable for the reader in, in, in some manner. Yes. And, and that's the the connection with the reader is ultimately what we're going for anyway. Absolutely. And how are you going to do that? But hit them mm-hmm. with things that we all know and we all relate to and we've all experienced. Right. Yeah. Things we struggle with. And people will say, you know, are you Annie or have you had these experiences? <laughs> right. And, and I often say, no, I'm not Annie. I wish I, I, I was Annie, but <laughs> she's uh, even more outspoken than I am. But certainly there are things I've dealt with in my life. I think every artist, things become are at some level autobiographical, even when you don't want them to be. But there are things that filter through. Well, and I think it does kind of come back to that idea of things that you think come to you, right? So you've, you've always like, this is how I feel about racism or sexism or depression. And these aren't things that you're making up for your story. These are things that you think in your real life all mm-hmm. the time. And so when you when it comes time to describe them, you don't have to, if you don't, you don't have to be aggressive about them. You mm-hmm. can just let your word choice kind of reveal, I guess, you know, what you're what you're trying to say, like the the message is, I'm writing this book because I want to say something, right? And then as you say the things, the things that you have been thinking for a long time or the things that have stuck with you will kind of just float to the top and you just Mm -hmm. pop, 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 pick them as you need them. Absolutely. I love the word reveal. I like that you said that. It's very true. You're opening a curtain and revealing things. Like like a play. Like a play. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're basically sort of making these hand motions of like opening up the opening up go. the curtains there. Now we've had a couple of playwrights on and the thing that always boggles my mind is like I love the sound of my own voice too much to ever even attempt a play. Like how do you because you have to give up so much control when you're doing plays mm-hmm. and um as you go through the process of writing a play what what can you do to keep that kind of control or is that something you just have to say, you know what, this is a collaborative story mm-hmm. and I don't know who I'm going to be collaborating yet with? Exactly. And I'm a very collaborative person. Uh, that's part of why when I first started writing novels, I felt isolated and I was so helpful to get – so grateful to get involved with different writing groups and find mentors and people to help critique and give me feedback and guide me. Because it's a lonely, kind of a lonely job. It is. It is. <laughs> Where theater, you are alone when you're writing the first draft. But immediately, what I did was I had actor buddies come over and I gave them lunch because actors are always hungry. Right. And, <laughs> so and, we, <laughs> and we'd do a read-through and I would hear and I would ask friends that I thought would fit the different roles, obviously, and I, I would hear the character and immediately I'd find where it wasn't working. And I would ask them to tell me what line was difficult to say. And and the act, I always trust actors because I'm a director as well and you, you cast smart people and then you trust them. It's all so collaborative. 
And then you do. You have to let go of it. And someone takes it and produces it and directs it and they cast their own people. And there is nothing more exciting than seeing your play up on stage. It really is thrilling. So I love the collaboration. But to me, I don't feel a need to control. I'm, I'm ready to release it. Right up, right. That's, Let your that's baby very, go. That's very grown up of you. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking like I, I don't, I don't know if I could. I think I, I think you said it's thrilling, and I'm thinking I would be nervous to the point of uh, nausea at, at that moment of like, oh my gosh, this thing that I, my creation, my baby is up there in someone else's hands, and are they going to drop it on its head? You know, I mean, I would. That's where I would be terrified. I mean, and I'm already insufferable. I, I can't imagine <laughs> if I had to deal with anybody else. <laughs> You don't seem that way. <laughs> um, one of the things that um, I noted about your your book, and it'll kind of lead me into another question, but the covers of your books are gorgeous. I mean, they're, they're is that your husband? Mm-hmm. Oh, fantastic! They are absolutely beautiful. Yes. Um, you know, they're. I mean, the they're almost like dreamy in a sense. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And I, I, please don't take that as a, her husband's saying right over here. I please don't take that as a, as a, but it just has almost like a, a it has such an interesting quality to those covers, but it, it really does. That's part of the beauty of it. And I've gotten a lot of positive feedback on the covers. I think, I they, think so. they really work. They, they really are. They embody the culture and the natural environment, the beauty of the Chesapeake Bay. And, there are Polaroid manipulations. So when Gary did this series of photographs, he was using what kind of camera? XX70. XX70. So the film came out the front and you let it dry usually, but instead of letting it dry, the little picture, he manipulates it right then and there. And then he scans it into the computer and he really doesn't do much else after that. He prints it. And so they look like a painting. And the first one is color accurate because it was sunrise and he took these pictures, this this series during the day. The other two, sunset and moonrise, our cover designer had to alter the color uh, intensity to make it look more like, you know, the end of the day and then at night. But but the original Polaroid is, is the base for that and they worked so well. And all along I wanted Packard's boat to be in one of them, and it's in Moonrise, and I'm really happy about that. Yes, his dead rise is is right there in the last one. Well, and it's funny, like we don't want to admit how important the cover is, um, but it is. You know, it's, it's, it's important. No, no offense intended. I mean, like, oh, it's I, critical. You know, we have the artist in the room, but we 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 want to say, you know what, my book is so good that I don't. It doesn't need a cover. People are just going to be – God is going to tell them to come and read my book and he doesn't tend to do that. No. Or at least not mine. Everything's important, including the spine because if it's set you know, on end in the shelf, they're going to see that spine. They're not going to even see the cover. So all of it's important. The pack- packaging is huge. And can you tell us a little bit about um, – you, know, you said you've had good receptions from people on the interior, had good feedback on the cover. Um, what has your, you know, you've been kind of at this, the first one, uh, uh, Sunrise came out in 2013, um, mm-hmm. and Moonrise just came out at the end of, uh, this past summer. So mm-hmm. what has been your experience with, you know, getting the word out and, and going through that process? I had to learn to, to deal with social media <laughs> and at my age, I didn't really want to do that, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I have friends who are successful authors and who have mentored me and, 
they were like, you have to do this. So they started me with Facebook and I learned to cope with that. And I do a pretty good job. I have people go, you're everywhere. And I don't think I'm everywhere, but I do make an effort with it. And I've learned, I've read a lot of articles, you know, authors, you know, you too, I'm sure you've researched, you've gone to, to seminars, you've listened to other podcasts on how to market your your work and those kinds of things. And it's the other hat that we have to wear. It's not as much fun as being the creative no, person, not. but it's part of what you need to do. And so I've buckled down and made myself go into the 21st century. <laughs> I'd rather just have someone leave a phone voicemail right. at home on a landline. I don't even want a cell phone, but I'm dealing with all those things. And before I came in here today, we had lunch around the corner. What's the name of the, the luncheonette? Uh, Rain's Reef. Yes, Rain's Reef. And Gary took a picture of me and I posted it right on Facebook, said where I was and what I was about to do with you guys and, 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 uh, you know, tagged you. Ooh, look at yeah. the language I'm using. <laughs> so, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram and I have a newsletter. Newsletters have, I've, I really didn't want to do a newsletter. They take up so much. Of, of the other person's time. How many newsletters are you signed up for? All of them. They, yeah. And yeah. they come and you're going, oh, I really want to read this. I feel guilty that I'm not reading this. And then, you know, you're in a whole head trip. I don't want to do that to people. But I was convinced that it's important. And I've been building my mailing list. And, and I think it is. I think it's a very useful tool for advertising. Yeah. And the, the difficulty with, with social media particularly is um, not getting sucked in. Like you have to have such a very clear line between – I'm working mm-hmm. and I'm not working because mm-hmm. it's it's so easy once you start to stay oh, and yes. not to and, and so is that is that like do you have like a, a time like you know at night I do my posts and in the morning I do my writing or anything like that? No, and I, I've struggled with that. Frankly, I can get lost. And then I'll not even be working at all because I'm looking at other people's posts. Or, yeah, or you yeah. look up, or you look up a word, and the next thing you know, you know, right. you're, you're down the Wikipedia for exactly. six months. Yeah. Exactly. There's the, the, the shiny object. I came on, and I'll go. What did I even come on here to do? <laughs> and I'm off on two, twelve, thirteen other things. And I, uh, so I, I have to rein myself in and be very careful. And we just adopted a little Havanese puppy at Christmas, so. Nothing's getting done because it's like having a baby. But I will be next week getting back back on track and I will have to be even more diligent about my time and setting it because of the little puppy that is very needy and very sweet. But holy cow, does that change your life? (laughs) And so you say you're getting back to work. What's up next? Do you have a... Yes, I have uh, a new novel and I have 25,000 words so far. And I need to get back on task. So it's called Soulmates, and it has a paranormal element All to right. it, which is totally new for me and very exciting. I'm I'm thrilled about it. We'll see what where where it all goes. Um, the characters are arguing about which ending they want, uh. <laughs> and and I want one, and they want the other. Maybe I think write I'm gonna, them both. And I'm going to have to listen to them because you know what? If I listen to them, it might be a duet. There may be a second book. And also, you can blame them if yeah. <laughs> if it doesn't work out, be like, "Well, these these other people were in charge." I told you so. <laughs> so it's um, I wanted a beach theme again, so I've decided on Rehoboth. All right, there, it's Delaware and Maryland are great states. Um, Delaware has a very strong support system for writers around Rehoboth and Cat and Mouse Press and the Rehoboth Rouse About Books and the, and right, the Writers Guild. It's incredible. Lewis Library has a fabulous free 
um, authors workshop in August every year. I think it's in August. It's it's fabulous. So I thought, well, I ought to go where it's happening. And I love the town anyway. So that'll be the beach house. But part of it takes place <laughs> up in Philadelphia and outside Philadelphia where we live. Yeah. And that, I think that also helps give you a little bit of a draw, you know, mm-hmm. that helps kind of geographically expand potentially a readership in that way. So and you do. You need to think about that. And when, when I'm thinking about my branding and I really have this water theme and nature theme and how important nature is to us in our healing process can be uh, potentially, that that's why I want to get out to the beach again. And not the Chesapeake, but, but the bay, the Delaware Bay, you know, something a little different, but it's still there. The birds are there. I'm, you know, we're birders and birds are always important in my stories, <laughs> as in Annie Crow Knoll. Right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and we are actually just running up against the clock a little bit. So, real quick, can we talk uh, about how uh, about your social media? Like, where are you at? You are at whom? Where? <laughs> www.gailpriest.com. And I was real excited that I got got that. How how exciting! Yeah, is Tony that? Russo was gone on the first day of the internet. Oh, there's like a billion people named Tony yeah. Russo. <laughs> yes, and the books are available: uh, hard copy and well, soft. Um, Paperback, paperback, and ebooks are available on all the sites. Very cool, and we'll make sure we have all the links to all the your social media buying oh, the books. You. We'll make sure everything goes up on the our website, which is so what's your story podcast dot com. And as long as you're there, if you'd like to send us a word, we will send you a limerick. One of uh, the conceits of the show is if you send a word, uh, Stephanie will make it into a haiku, and I will make it into a limerick, and we will put it on a postcard, and we will send it to you in the mail like it's 1840. Totally. And I think a pony will bring it to your house. <laughs> you, you, you never know. So um, so you can reach out to us through so what's your story podcast.com and that's the place where um, all of the authors are. Um, we're going to have a reading from our author, so you can you can listen to the author read a little bit and all sorts of other stuff so you can connect with us there yep and you can subscribe to the podcast right there uh, on iTunes and you can also just leave us some feedback if you like the show you like what you're hearing we'd absolutely love for you to give us a good review on iTunes if you hate it just don't click it and uh, we'll go from there <laughs> unreview it yes for sure uh, unreview yes <laughs> alright now Stephanie this is the part of the show where you thank the guests well Gail thank you so much for coming all the way down here and talking with us it was a pleasure having you thank you for having me I had a ball So What's Your Story was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at SoWhatsYourStoryPodcast.com, where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. And if you like it, then feel free to give us a good review. Tell your story.